0: The Blaze Radio Network, on demand. Joining us now, uh, the senior fellow and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review, is it Isla Shapiro? Ilya. Ilya, how are you?
1: I'm doing well, doing well.
0: Thanks so much for joining us. I wanted to get you on to, uh, obviously we love uh, the folks at Cato, but we wanted to get you on to talk about this uh, Supreme Court ruling about unions and help us understand this. I'm not a union fan. I think they ought to have a right, you know, freedom to organize if they want, but I shouldn't be forced to pay if I don't want to join.
1: Well, that's the point. Uh, We've seen several cases this term about being compelled to associate yourself with or support a message that you don't agree with. And in this case, uh, 22 states have laws, or now had laws, because those are no longer valid now, uh, that allowed unions to charge fees. In this case, this is a case out of Illinois, 78% of the normal union dues, so it's not just some small amount, to non-union members, which were supposed to go, solely to collective bargaining on the idea that, well, you're benefiting from this bargain that we drive on behalf of the union members. So you should pay for it. Okay. You don't have to pay for our political activity, our electioneering and all that, but at least the collective bargaining you have to pay for. And the court here said uh, two things. First of all, um, this is still forcing someone to pay for something they, they, they might not want. Right. Uh, That is, if I want uh, more, uh, higher pay rather than tenure protections or something like that or whatever the union is bargaining for. I might not want that. You know, thank you, thanks, but no thanks for that bargain that you're driving. But also in the public sector, you really can't split up what's political or electioneering versus what's purely collective bargaining. Well, you say that gets public- that gets
0: pretty muddy pretty quick, doesn't it?
1: Well, right, because everything you negotiate affects state budgets or education policy, transportation mm-hmm. policy, government contracts all these different things that are clearly matters of political relevance. So unlike in the private sector, in the public sector, you really – the calculus works a different way, and the, the, the First Amendment uh, uh, considerations work differently. And so that's why the court overturned a 40-year-old precedent that uh, allowed states to do this. And so now these 22 will have to go about it the same way that the other 28 did. And it's not like unions have died in the other 28. They actually just have to be more efficient and actually responsive to what members want in order to attract people who want to pay them dues.
0: So this levels the playing field across all 50 states? That's right. It it
1: simply sets the rule that... uh, you can't be forced, as in, if you don't want to join the union, you can't be forced to, uh, to pay any part of the
0: dues. Brings them all in line. Now, we had a similar case with private unions I mentioned a couple years ago, but the Supreme Court only had eight and ended up being a four-to-four four split. Do you think we'll likely see another challenge on this based on our current ruling um, on the private sector unions?
1: Well, th- what the case you're talking about was actually the exact same one as, as this one. It split four-to-four. Four. It was the same public sector union uh, uh, case. Oh, I thought that was the, the had- private sector one. There are different sorts of cases that are brought in, the, in the, that had been brought in the private sector. This is why people were predicting that this would be uh, a ruling for the workers against the unions, because that's how things have gone. And Justice Alito was the one writing them uh, about opt-ins and opt-outs for certain things. Uh, but uh, what, the question you're asking is about right-to-work laws, that is, is there a federal constitutional right uh, not to have to pay dues to the union in the private sector. Right. Uh, that's, that's more dubious. I think as a matter of policy, a number of states, especially in the last decade, have put that in, uh, either legislatively or through referenda. But I'm not sure that as a matter of constitutional law, the union can't contract with the employer to say, okay, we're going to be a union shop. That's a matter of freedom of contract. It works differently, again, in the public sector gotcha. when it's the government, which has, you know, but but in the private sector, I think uh, unless you you change the law as a matter of of of, 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 leg- of positive law, of legislation, uh, I think that's uh, I don't think the Constitution has much to say about.
0: So it. so what you'd have is uh, private companies choosing whether or not to agree to those union standards, where everybody must pay into the union, so on and so forth. Th-
1: that's right. That's right. So
0: any company could theoretically say, okay, we're not going to be a union shop, so we don't have to worry about it anyway
1: that that 's right, you know federal law should not be privileging those kinds of relationships but it, but it also i don't think uh can or or should uh, disallow
0: them well wow, that's awesome that's good information to uh to distinguish between the two of them that way i'm uh, I'm particularly frustrated over um over this as well. I understand that the unions say, well, if we are collective bargaining and you don't join the union, you benefit from all of this work we've done, so you pay the dues. Is there what what are those states that have already moved beyond this where they force people to pay some dues in? Um they've not gone away, right? They've still been successful for what they want?
1: No, apparently they're still effective for collective bargaining, precisely for managing the employer employee relationship, adjudicating disputes and, and things like that. What they have lost is the ability to get involved in national politics. Um that is, you know, why should uh, Uh, a local uh, government uh, employee union be involved in a national debate over uh, whether it's abortion or gun rights or Obamacare or anything else. Uh, They have transformed the unions to pure uh, bargaining units, what they're supposed to be representing the workers, rather than political entities. And that's really what the union pushback is. And frankly, because 98 or 99 percent of their donations are to the Democratic Party, that's what the the left's uh, response to this ruling, uh, where that comes from.
0: We had a lot of other uh, interesting cases just come down. Are they done? We've gotten all their. We've heard all of them now. They've got all their decisions right. This we're year done. Session? Those of okay. us
1: that, that watch the court for a living are, uh, you know, we're, we're exhausted <laughs> because it's been five straight days. Plus now the Kennedy retirement. So, uh, yeah, but they're 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 done. There's nothing new coming down.
0: So the Kennedy retirement—that's pretty big news. But he's been—I uh, don't think most people realized he still b- voted much more conservative than not over his 30 years on the on the Supreme Court.
1: I mean, it, it depends how you measure. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm always skeptical of these metrics of who's moving left, moving right, <laughs> they shift it over their career, because it, it, it all depends on the mix of cases. Uh, activists and, and others who bring lawsuits uh, look at what the composition of the court is. And if they feel that the court is in a particular direction might be friendly, they might bring a more adventurous suit that ultimately loses. That if the court had already been, uh, you know, to the other side, they simply wouldn't have brought the suit. Um, I don't know how to characterize whether overall he's more conservative. It depends how you define conservative. He certainly wasn't an originalist uh, or a textualist. He kind of had his own theories of how to apply constitutional law. He he didn't please anybody all of the time. Uh, He was often called the libertarian justice, although – and indeed, he did agree with with Cato's position probably more than than most other justices most years, but not because of – Uh, a certain view of the Constitution that agrees with the types of briefs that Cato filed. But just he got to the result that, uh, you know, whether it's combining voting both for gay marriage and against Obamacare, take those two cases already. There's very few groups or individuals that Mm -hmm. hold uh, that view. But he managed to get there. Uh, So he was certainly in the end kind of a, a, a moderate. Um, uh, you know, I don't know whether at the end of the day, more liberal or more conservative, those are artificial terms, uh, right. in a certain sense, but, uh, definitely of a, a different mold than, than anybody else who's currently on the court.
0: So we also had some other interesting cases. We had the, um, internet sales tax, uh, come down. That was uh, interesting. Do you think they got that one right?
1: I don't. That's the one big case, this term that I disagree with. And that one was not a standard, uh, Liberal versus conservative, with Kennedy as the uh, as the deciding vote. Um, uh, this one turned uh, at least for the at least for uh, uh, Thomas and Gorsuch, who were in the majority, to allow state taxation of businesses who did not have a physical presence uh, in the state. On what uh, this is uh, uh, pardon me for getting into the legal weeds for a bit. It's called the dormant commerce clause. That is. We might be familiar with the commerce clause. Congress has mm-hmm. power to regulate interstate commerce. That came up, obviously, during the Obamacare fight. Where does Congress get the power to do these things? Blah, blah. Well, what if Congress isn't involved, is not involved in a given area? Can it occupy that field and prevent states from getting involved because it's properly a matter of interstate commerce? And by not regulating, com- Congress has taken a decision to leave that uh, kind of free of, of, of regulation in that way. Um, uh, Thomas and, and Gorsuch uh, and Scalia was of this mold as well. Say no unless unless Congress has taken a particular view. There's no the Constitution doesn't say that when Congress doesn't act, you know, nobody can. Uh, I disagree with that. I think there's kind of an implicit if something is either left to state regulation or to federal regulation, whether Congress chooses to regulate or not. But anyway, regardless, uh, the court, the majority uh, uh, disagreed with me uh, uh, on that and said that, yeah, because in the modern economy, the interstate commerce happens whether you have a physical presence or not, and therefore states are now going to be free to, not necessarily that they all will be, but they are now free to uh, regulate companies that uh, at least transact significant business. Uh, And this is not about Amazon. Amazon was actually one of the biggest winners of this ruling uh, because it already was collecting state sales taxes, at least most places, because Amazon is physically located. In most states, they have warehouses and distribution centers and, and, and whatnot. But who the, but now Amazon won't have to face competition from, well, the company that was at the center of this lawsuit, Wayfair. There's other ones, mm-hmm. Overstock.com, others that, that fulfill uh, uh, orders made purely on the Internet. So now uh, they will have to pay the same uh, taxes that, that Amazon had been. Uh, unclear. The, the other big winners, of course, are, are software companies that will now be writing tax compliance software <laughs> uh, to help, help small businesses uh, right. uh, comply with all this stuff. But uh, That's consumers a- are going to be paying a bit more, and small businesses are, uh, you know, they're going to have to adjust to all of this. So. A little instability about what's going to happen in the business world for the next little little while until this all shapes out.
0: And you know what this brings front and center now is the debate over taxation in general for each state and uh, who you're putting in office in your state and what they're gonna what they're gonna expect of us. Uh, another interesting ruling was the travel ban. I think they got this one right. Uh, I uh, if if the travel ban had truly been anti-Muslim, if Trump said we're just going to ban Muslims, I absolutely would be fighting against it. I wouldn't stand for it. But I don't think it was. I think he got a pass uh, regardless of what he tweeted and said based on the structure of the travel ban.
1: I think that's right. Uh, and I'm not a fan of the travel ban. I, I think it's it's poorly crafted policy. If True. your goal is to go after you know, threats to national security, uh, people from these countries uh, have not uh, committed terrorist acts in the United States and uh, lots of countries that were whose nationals have but were not on the list, and they only represent uh, – the countries on the list only represent 8% of the global Muslim world. I mean, the biggest countries, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Indonesia, uh, Pakistan, are, are not on there. So I, I think you're right. Uh, so as a matter of, I always like to have examples of places where my legal analysis diverges from my policy preferences. Because that's, a, that's a, you know, I always tell people that that's <laughs> the mark of, a, of a intellectual integrity. And so I, I do agree with this ruling because, especially travel ban 3.0, we're not talking about the Stephen Miller special, the first week of the Trump administration <laughs> right. where there was chaos at the airport <laughs> and, and all of that, wasn't properly lawyered. By the time 3.0 ro- rolled around, there was an interagency process. It was properly delineated in the legal papers. And uh, as you say, courts deferred to the executive branch on determinations of national security. I think rightly so. Uh, and regardless of Trump's tweets and all that, the court mentioned that. They said that's not nothing. Uh, But still, uh, you know, if it had just been that and then boom, Muslims can't enter, that's a different situation than this narrowly drawn uh, proclamation. And as a matter of statutory law, uh, Congress does give the president broad discretion, not over uh, setting rules for who can get a green card or anything like that, but in terms of what class of aliens can be blocked from entering the country. And not just for national security reasons, for reasons of the national interest, that might be. If there's a public health epidemic or if there's some economic reason or or something like that, uh, detrimental to the national interest. So I think on balance, the court got that right. And by the way, the view that this was a, you know, anti-Muslim, just bigoted, uh, uh, Trump is a bad man, kind of we must resist this sort of uh, rhetoric, that only picked up two justices, Sotomayor and Ginsburg, the Mm -hmm. other two who were in dissent. Wrote kind of a a -a milk-a-toast dissent that was really like, well, maybe we don't know. Let's get some more fact-finding and evidence about what this is all about. Kind of a hand-rigging sort of thing. I guess they didn't want to join the majority, but they certainly weren't about to join the uh, uh, the, the, the more fiery dissent in saying that this is, you know, the republic is collapsing.
0: Mr. Shapiro, we really appreciate you joining us. And uh, what we'll do is we'll tweet out a link to uh, your information at Cato.
1: My pleasure. Take care. Thanks
0: so much. Ilya Shapiro, Senior Fellow and Editor-in-Chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Lots of good information. Knowledge is power. Tweet at us with the hashtag WhatILearnedToday. This is The Morning Blaze with Doc Thompson on the Blaze Radio Network.